I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest is Susie Ross, She's an assistant professor and coordinator of recreation therapy and complementary and alternative medicine at San Diego State University, where she works with personal growth, transformation, and play as medicine. And she's the author of The Map to Wholeness, Your Guide Through the 13 Phases of Transformation, Real Life Stories of Crisis, Change, and Reinvention. Susie Ross, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. So there are numerous maps of consciousness and the human journey, from Joseph Campbell on the hero's journey, the mythological journeys through the underworld, and then there's the Tarot as another example. How did you come to create a new map of the terrain and of the human journey? Thank you for having me, and it's a wonderful way to start. This came about as a result of my doctoral dissertation and needing to have a question to be able to ask and to pursue across many years and dive deeply and scientifically into a phenomena. And at the time, I had a number of international travel experiences and various different experiences of my life that were transformative and deeply informative to my life and impactful and in particular, I had recently, at the time, led some study abroad to Costa Rica and Peru. And I was sitting amongst the redwoods in the front of my house and in contemplation and meditation for what is the question that I would 
pursue. And what really was compelling to me was to understand more about the integration of transformation, meaning what happens to us after a life-changing experience, and is it possible to integrate that into daily life? Is it possible to integrate a powerful experience into body, mind, spirit and have it be alive in us and living in us and not something that is something that happened that was powerful, but that is like an appendage or something that we don't know what to do with? But rather, is it possible to integrate and have it be part of who we are? And so that was the impetus that caused the eventual, what I call now the map to wholeness pattern emerged out of the data through many, many months of research with a research team from which that information arose. So I would love for you to begin by telling the experience you had while backpacking. Okay. Well, that experience happened in 1991. I was somewhere around 21 years old, and I was leading backpacking trips of teenagers, small groups of teenagers, and I'd been living in the mountains for about three months and very much living on the land without tent or anything, so it was very rudimentary and remote, and I think that played a key role in what happened, and the transformative experience that transpired was one morning when we arose and ate breakfast, the group of us, we went on our way towards our next goal and headed over a saddle between two mountain peaks, and we were pretty high up. It was somewhere around 13,500 feet, and it's above tree line, so there was, you know, it's the bald part of the mountains, and then there was a ridge where it was panoramic views in both directions, and I had an experience where, uh, unbeknownst to me, left my body and went into everything that we can see and not see. And, of course, this was not prompted by any sort of drugs. I was just going about my business and enjoying the morning, and the young people were in a line walking in front of me, and I had my co-leader at the front of the line. And I had moments where I could feel a tear come down my cheek, but for the most part, I was not really aware of my body. It was just everywhere. And I have vivid memories of being... uh, piece of bark, being the wind, being molecules in many places, being the substance within the molecules, and on the other side of the galaxy, and everything was normal. And that was the odd piece, the normalcy of it, and the quality of the nature of the substance that is everywhere that was informing my moment-to-moment awareness, the knowledge and the love that exists and emanates that we read about and that people who've died talk about and have had other various similar experiences. And, you know, so I had the fortune of having this experience and came down from it, started to slowly come back into my body as we came down the mountain. And from that day forward, I really wanted to have it back again because it was such a deeply moving experience that infiltrated my every cell and everywhere in between and informed the way I view the world and understand the world and what I wanted out of life. And for many years, I was like haunted really by this experience of what does it mean and how do I communicate it and how do I be with it and 
how can I have it back? And, you know, of course, nothing really measures up to that, at least in my experience, in that sort of way. But that was very much the beginning of the trajectory of the rest of my life and very much informed my doctoral research. And then, you know, the outcomes of the research then became the book and then all the rest of my scholarly work and then probably the rest of my life. So (laughs) it was definitely a pivotal time for me and informed me as far as wanting to understand transformation. I started out actually studying trauma for many years. And then in my doctoral work, I studied transformation and then realized they were two sides of the same coin. I would love for you to define what you mean by transformational experience within this context and also in the context of how you talked about how that experience changed you and yet at the same time, it didn't really change you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think where I'll go with that because I want to go like four different directions with that. But going into the research, my question was, what is the process of integrating transformation? What is the experience of integrating transformation? So it was a phenomenological research in trying to understand the phenomena. So the way to understand the phenomena is by deep reflection and analysis as a group into the lived experience. And even my question was, I can see now, inaccurate. Because the question was, what is the experience of transformation as if the catalytic experience is transformation? And I think that is a very important part of my scholarly work and even the work in this book is to reimagine and re-understand and re-question what is transformation, that it is in fact not that catalytic experience that can cause an individual to feel forever changed, transformed, as though it is already completed, when in fact, that is just the beginning of transformation. And in fact, the third phase of transformation, according to my research, is that catalytic experience is phase three of 13. So there's a lot more to go after the experience whether it's a traumatic catalyst or a beautiful, sublime or expansive one, you know, there's a lot to go as far as causing that transformative, which I think is the key word, is using it more precisely, is its transformative experience that has the potential to transform you. I also have had major transformative experiences in my life, many of which occurred when I was quite young, some as a child, and maybe the most profound one when I was 18, and yet I have spent the last four-plus decades integrating those experiences into my life in a way that is anchored or made sense in a deep way. Because those initial transformative experiences are very magical, but they don't really have a context in our life, do they? especially when you're younger. Yes, especially when you're younger. And I'm also curious if you had prior experience with spiritual practice or read things like that prior to that experience. No one's asked me that before. I would say that I was raised Roman Catholic, and going to church every Sunday was really important to my family. My parents are very spiritual people, 
And even though it was very important we go every Sunday, there was a way that they held it lightly so that I didn't grow up in an environment where I felt burdened or suffocated by religious dogma or rules. So that informed me, certainly. And then as a teenager, I remember reading some books. I guess they were books at the time that were occult, you know, and I don't remember anything specifically, but I clearly was seeking and interested. As a young person, I remember there were two people that came to my church, brother and sister Marion, and they spoke in a way that I'd never heard before. And I was completely captivated, and they became deeply impressionable to me. And and my parents, I think, could sense it. Like, I became friends with them. I ended up spending time with them. And it's almost like my parents were like, oh, we don't really know what to do with Susie. Let's, let's go put her over here with them. And So those sorts of things happened, you know, but those are pretty ordinary. When I was young, I had no religious or spiritual upbringing at all. So I didn't talk about any of the things that happened to me, and I had no context whatsoever, nor understanding of what was happening to me. So as a child, I just, you know, I took it as I took everything else, as just things that were happening Mm -hmm. to me, even though these were inner experiences as opposed to outer experiences. But since I had never heard anything about them, I didn't question them at all. I just, they just happened. Um, after that experience of your awareness, your consciousness merging with everything, you also described how there was a storm that was approaching and you guys had been getting rained on for like a week and you didn't want that to happen again. So tell that part of the story too. When we were coming down the mountain and I was coming into my body and becoming aware as a human what I had experienced and what I was still experiencing to a certain degree. And as soon as I was engaging with my regular beingness, I was, you know, just deeply overwhelmed being in the face of consciousness and love and knowledge and power that is incomprehensible, is ineffable. And the only thing that helped me is to sing Amazing Grace myself softly and that helped a great deal and then when the storm system started coming towards I was thinking oh my god I don't want it to rain because it's been cold and wet for a week and you know it's finally dry kind of and then it occurred to me that all I needed to do was just move the cloud because I was the cloud and honestly I mean it was so long ago It's just hard to believe that, you know, I just moved the cloud. I mean, it seems so unimaginable to me now, even though I'm pretty darn sure that's what happened because it rained all around us but not on us. And it happened for quite a while to the degree that there were rainbows all around us. And when that happened, I was overcome with emotion because I was really experiencing these two radically different realities at the same time of being on a literal level something beyond me and at the same time being me and that was just absolutely overwhelming and it just sobbed and so yeah that was 
quite an experience. Has any of that recurred for you in your life? Nothing of that magnitude, but I've I've had other very profound experiences that were deeply informative, but nothing like that. And for many, many, many years, like I said, I really wanted it again. And now I feel so grateful that I really don't have that longing anymore. And that's like a real nice relief because that longing was so deep and it's so nice. I'm really okay with my life and I just don't long for it anymore. And if I never experience it again, I'm actually fine. I'm so glad you said that. Those kind of experiences are catalytic, but they aren't indicative of the experience of wholeness, are they? Or at least not exactly. in this world, not, not in a physical body. Yes, yes. In the, in the human realm, right, well, this is where we are. And I'm a human right now, and that is my reality, and this is where I am. And if I'm, you know, off in the ethers, that's not human. It's something else, transcendent or whatever the word is. And my use of the word wholeness is very much about the earthly experience that includes the transcendent, the invisible realm, but incorporated in an organized way into the matrix of who you are, who I am, so that when we are in a state of wholeness, we are deeply human with real flaws, real struggles, and imperfections that are ridden with every day, and the presence of an organized self that is integral and has a certain degree of balance. That you can then take forward with you into subsequent rounds of these 13 phases? Yes, exactly. Once we go through a sizable transformation, a full figure eight, then there's a solidity, there's a wholeness that you have, that you embody, that you are, that you have become, and that is so helpful as you move through into the next transformation, which causes, you know, yet another transformation into another state of wholeness. And it's, there's a way, you know, you, once you have that wholeness with you, you, you have it. You know, but there's a way, I think I visualize it, that you're a sphere of a certain size. You go through another transformation, and then you become a sphere of a larger size. And you have literally more capacity for love, power, and knowledge. Because your transformation is a transformation of the structure and the container that you are. And so the transformation is fundamentally a process of recreating your structure. And the structure is the container for your love, power, and knowledge. And so once you have the whole structure, an organized structure, with a grounded and integrated ego, which is another important part of the first major transformation of your life, is integrating your ego. So then you have an integrated, mature ego that is a foundation carrying you forward. There's a quote in the book from A.H. Almas. The journey of ascent is that of shedding and separation leading to the simplicity of singlehood. 
the journey of descent is that of integration and union leading to the richness of wholeness. I would love for you to talk about the journeys of ascent and descent. And this relates to your figure eight, I think. Yes, absolutely. It's quite powerful for me to, after having studied our internal experience through this research as a collective, to then explore, further explore literature, only to find the figure eight as exemplified in that quote that you just said, where spiritual teachers and or scholars have identified the figure eight of the upper and the lower cycle. But he's one of the few to bring the two together like that. But he said it in passing. It's not like he's fleshed it all out, like what is in the book. But the upper part of the figure eight is the transformative journey, well known as Campbell's, the hero's journey, well known also in anthropology, rites of passage and initiation of the call to adventure type of thing, the departure, the catalytic experience or the the transformative experience, and then the return home. And that upper part of the figure eight is definitely been understood and talked about for like 100 years. But the lower part is the part that is less known, that is the journey into the feminine, journey into yourself, journey into the underworld. The upper journey is a journey upward and outward in general. It's outward into a visible realm in general. It develops the masculine, and the lower journey develops the feminine. The upper journey is about union and intermingling with the self, the higher self, your soul, and an intermingling with that which is transcendent or divine. And during those catalytic parts, that upper half, we receive our new self. And then in receiving the new self during that catalyst, we're integrating that new self and gestating that new self as we come down from the top of the figure eight down into that lower part and bringing it into our inner world, into our unconscious, into the underworld, into the darkness, into the feminine, where we have a union with that aspect of ourselves, the union of, eventually the union of the masculine and feminine is the end point at phase 13. When the upper and the lower are combined, when you arrive back at the middle, that is the place in which that upper journey and the lower journey of those opposites become unified and made whole. The marriage of the masculine and feminine that Jung talked about. And you refer to the integration part of this process as being the hidden part of transformation. Is that because that part of the journey is into the underworld or into the darkness, into the realm of the unknown, the feminine, like in a sense, cycling back through the womb? Mm -hmm. Yes. What comes to mind is that when we receive the new self in the catalytic experience and we come down through these phases, that is the integrating. It's like you've expanded or shattered 
during the catalytic experience, a positive experience, you expand into your soul and receive the new you, or in a trauma, you shatter, and then you're opened and you receive the new self. And then there's a contraction as you come down from that trauma or powerful positive experience, and there's the contracting, and you literally have received more of you. And so as you contract, there has to be a place for the more of you to go. And when you return home, that sense of, I'm different, but my life is still the same. I'm different on the inside, but my friends and family and issues are still the same, is very real. There's almost a literal level that you've received this new you and it doesn't have a place to be. And that's the purpose of dismemberment is that when you get to dismemberment, that's the critical point at which transformation becomes permanent. Because during dismemberment, you liquefy like a caterpillar does in a chrysalis in order to become something entirely different, to cause the fundamental structure to be completely dissolved and reorganized into a new structure. That is the mixing of who you were, the foundations of who you are, get rearranged in a configuration that matches the you that you receive, the new you. So the new you that you received is like a imprint or a architectural plan, you know, if you will. And then that rearrangement. It sounds uh, like what's going on here is that there's a continual kind of cycling through all of these phases, but in different ways, depending on where we happen to be in the process. And that also reflects where we are at a base level, like as we grow and have more experiences, it gives us a greater sense of understanding of the world around us and our relationship to it, you know, how we integrate our experience in a way that makes sense of the world and our place in it. And each time we go through some of these cycles, you described it as a circle getting bigger or expanding as we go through new cycles of integration of this overall process of transformation and growing. It's kind of messy to talk about, but you actually break it down into separate segments. Perhaps we should have you describe how we or where we go from having a catalytic transformational experience and how the process evolves. And you talk about this as a natural process that happens. Mm -hmm. The process, like you said, is during the research I had as a personal question as I was observing the data and as it emerged. My primary question was not this. I, I wanted to know, is this natural or not? You know, is transformation of nature and we can just enjoy the ride you know, frogs and caterpillars do it, so can't we transform, just have nature help allow us to transform, or is conscious intervention needed? And I was of the mind that conscious intervention was needed in the process, and I've interviewed many people since the research was completed in the process of writing this book. I've interviewed a lot of people, and I only put some of the stories in the book 
save some of them for later, I guess, but it wasn't the right place for them. But there was one lady that I interviewed, the oldest person I interviewed is in her 90s, and she had three transformations in her life. And that was the most transformations that I'd seen because what I've seen over and over again is that for whatever reason, the process of a transformation from one person to become an entirely new human being is 15 years minimum. And I don't know if that's going to continue to stay as it is as I continue to do research, but as it stands right now, that has been a repetitive observation is 15 years. And so this particular lady was old enough to have gone through it enough times. And as I interviewed her across her whole lifespan, you know, she was born in a time where there was not consciousness studies. There was not even much psychotherapy. There was not this emotional intelligence. There were all these things that were not the cultural norms that we have now, or at least the resources we have access to. And yet she transformed. And that was very informative for me because I thought, well, then, you know, how much consciousness really is needed to transform and the truth is, is that we can transform without having it be this laborious experience of self-analysis and reflection and all of that. So that's one piece of the puzzle. If you're just joining us, my guest is Susie Ross. She's the author of this book we're talking about, The Map to Wholeness, Your Guide Through the 13 Phases of Transformation, Real-Life Stories of Crisis, Change, and Reinvention. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. The other piece in examining this question, I spent several years pursuing this question, and that culminated in writing a scholarly article in a psychology journal about my findings. And my findings were that transformation requires human intervention and nature and the supernatural. And all three are at play, but that for the most part, the, it's natural. Like Natural processes are occurring for most of the 13 phases. So it's quite a relief to know, for me anyway, to know that nature is kind of there pushing and guiding and, and leading the way, like a river that you're in flowing, and that whether you know you're in it or not, a lot of times doesn't even matter. So I find comfort in that. But I do think that, you know, the times have come where we have access to so many resources and awareness and collective consciousness that we have the opportunity to transform through intention. We have the opportunity to transform with consciousness and awakeness and be awake during the process, aware of what's going on. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because... The number one reason was I want to be of service to others, that this work of mine, if it could cause anyone to feel more comfort during times of pain and guidance when there's confusion and feeling lost, then I will feel like I met what I was feeling compelled to do. But the other piece is the map allows us to experience the journey consciously and, you know, as a person, obviously, who's been studying this for 15 years, I have experienced it with my eyes open. And, oh, my goodness, it's 
spectacular to experience even dismemberment when you know what's going on and you know the purpose and you know what has come to pass and its necessity and its qualities and it almost becomes like a trusted friend like you know that I'm not in it alone because this is a pattern a foundation of the universe itself that is moving you and is with you and becoming through you. And it's really awe-inspiring for me. And also to recognize that dismemberment is just a phase and that it will move to the next phase, whereas often when we're in the dismemberment phase, it can feel like this is it. We're never going to emerge out of this. Mm-hmm. Yep, at least exactly. I've ex- at least I've experienced that numerous times in my life. Now, there's another thing about this. How how difficult is it to recognize all the phases in this process? It seems like some of the phases are much harder to to recognize, mm-hmm. at least accurately. Yes. Some of the phases just stick out like sore thumbs, you know, and, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's definitely dismemberment. That one's the catalyst. This one's the return. You know, this is departure. This is disorientation. This is grief and denial. You know, if you're aware of the phases, then they it becomes more evident when you're in them. But there are definitely some phases. Oh, my goodness, they're so subtle. You know, the birth phase is so, so subtle. In general, the lower half is subtle. It's so invisible. It is what is not seen about transformation. It is so internal. It's so private. You can have your whole, you're like having this massive transformation and no one knows. Because you go to work and you, ha- you do the same thing and you might have the same face, but inside this whole radical rearrangement's going on and the subtle level, some of which you're aware of and some of which you're not, and everything feels disorienting and confusing, and dear God, when will it be over, you know? And when will things feel better? And of course, that's why anthropology missed it, you know? Of course, that's why, you know, Joseph Campbell missed it. But once you get home, there's this whole other piece. But Joseph Campbell didn't entirely miss it. You know, he knew that there was this other part. It wasn't over when he said it was over. He knew that, but he just didn't have the language and he didn't have the question. That wasn't his question. And so he couldn't put his finger on it and he talked about it. I just finished an article about this that will be published actually in the next few days, extending Campbell's journey and talking about what he talked about in some of his lectures. Where I'd love for you to go is to talk more specifically about the descent part, the part that is harder to recognize, that's more subtle, that we have to go down into the underworld or into the darkness, into the unknown, and really just go through it. Like, there's no shortcut through that process. Mm-hmm. We have to fully live it. And just for a quick reference, I spent, or at least it certainly felt like I spent a huge part of my life in disorientation, which is part of that So could you take us through the descent part? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that you're bringing up a really good point because disorientation is the doorway. It's at the doorstep of dismemberment. 
And, you know, disorientation is essentially an experience of identity and identity loss and who am I. It's negotiating who am I. The disorientation stems from that. And the not knowing who am I is directly related to the catalyst. So the catalyst causes you to receive the new self. So you have inside of you the new self and the outdated self. And so there's two inside of you. (laughs) And once you get down to disorientation, the grief and denial is over. Like you're still grieving. Grieving is part of the process. It's with you. And talk about what that grieving is about. The grieving is multidimensional. There's so many types of grief and layers of grief. But the grief is, you know, before disorientation, the grief is, specifically in that phase, the grief is either grieving what you lost during the catalyst, grieving what happened that you wish that what happened, the trauma, you wish it did not happen and it's painful and you're grieving that it happened and you're in denial also. You vacillate between grief and denial. Denial that the bad thing happened and grief that it happened and going back and forth between that and this the grief of the loss of what has transpired and the loss of yourself and loss of what you thought was real, loss of your life, loss of so many things, loss of what was dear to you. Loss of and, innocence or yes. and also the sense that you can't go home again? Yes, you can't ever go back. And if you had a positive experience, there's the grief that it's over. And then denial, it's not over, I don't want it to be over. And vacillating between those. But the truth is is that the grief and denial, denial can only get you so far, right? Because you deny, 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 and then eventually you exhaust denial. And then when you come out of denial, you land into disorientation. Because if you can't be in denial anymore, then you have to face yourself. And when you face yourself, you don't know who you are. And then what? You know, I think I'm that which was founded in the catalytic experience. Somewhere in that catalytic experience, you glimpsed and grasped and felt the something else that you are. And yet there's this outdated self that's really present in your day-to-day life that still has the similar problems and, you know, et cetera. And so during disorientation, it's like a tug of war between the new self and the outdated self. And there's one step forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back. Okay, I'm going to try change this way. And you try linear change. You know, we use the mind and we use information to say, okay, this is what I can do. I can go learn information, learn strategies, learn change that I can implement to make my life better, to find myself and to allow my life to change. And then one step back with old behaviors slipping into old ways. And so there's this vacillating between wanting that new self and that healthier life and then slipping backwards. And it's just, right, it's no fun because it's confusing and it's exhausting and disheartening. In the videos on my website, I have video vignettes about three to four minutes each where I take the reader, the person who's on the website through a journey of using artwork, that art depicting what it's like to experience the phase. There's probably like somewhere between four and ten images of artwork that I selected over a long period of time, carefully selected, and then I have a voiceover to lead it through. And in the image that I love in the video for the disorientation is this tug of war between the two selves. And the other image is 
there's a shore, like you're standing on one shore, and you're looking across, and you can see this land over there. But getting there, I'm going to have to find a craft to get myself across all that water. It's like, how the heck am I going to do that? You know, and disorientation has that feel like I have an idea about where I want to be, like what an image of my happier, healthier life. But darned if I know how to get there, I'm never going to be able to do it. And that is disheartening. And just sticking with it, the key is sticking with your experience, being with your experience, being with your stuckness, being with the confusion, and being with the feelings as much as you can, and being gentle with yourself. Because if you can just stay in it, you will go into dismemberment, and that's the magic of transformation. The catalyst, of course, is the bright and shiny magic, and the dismemberment is the the dark magic, like not in the sense of dark magic, but, you know, it's kind of like the yin-yang. And those are, to me, the magical parts of the journey. The transformative experience is like the magic of, of this golden sunlight or something transcendent. And the dismemberment is like the journey through the dark night of the soul, which, while you're in it, can seem unending. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It it typically lasts a couple years. I was talking about it with a friend last night, dismemberment, and sharing how once you go through the figure eight with your eyes open, if you know the figure eight and the 13 phases, and you can trust that you really are going to come out on the other side with a life and a self that is more beautiful and more abundant and healthier than you can possibly imagine for real, not just like this pipe dream, nice little new age idea, but for real. And once you experience that, like, wow, I am totally different. And my whole life is different and it's better than I could have possibly imagined. And once you experience that, there can be a relaxing in the process because you can trust it, you know, and trust during the most difficult time, which is dismemberment and then in that dismemberment, so when I was most recently in dismemberment, which was during this past decade, which was awful, because it was just not fun, just like dismemberment isn't, but in that time of emotional anguish and darkness and feeling like I can't move and so much pain and suffering, and yet I could feel the veil between me and the divine was so thin. And so during dismemberment in that darkness, there's a way that you can be with the divine that is so, it's not peaceful, it's sublime, but it has this sort of quietness and gentleness and slowness that allows for spaciousness to get to know it and yourself just by sheer virtue of the slowness and the heaviness. And I found in those places that it was a rich time to ask questions about anything I wanted and to be in a space of receiving more than just, you know, it just allowed me to experience more because when we're close to the divine or whatever, a transcendent state during the catalytic experience, it's such a 
it's kind of it's a faster experience just goes by more quickly and it's of course by surprise we don't know when the catalyst is going to happen and so it happens and then you're in it and you're immersed in it and taken away by it and so it's hard in that quickness and the surprise to sit back and you know take it all in you know and analyze and you know you don't don't have that spaciousness and slowness i've experienced so far anyway you know for the most part in comparison to dismemberment because dismemberment is and i just the best word i can find right now is sublime beauty and a side that isn't that when you move into surrender and healing there is a visceral feeling of the weight lifting because grief plays such a you were talking about that earlier grief plays a really important role in transformation and a very important role in facilitating our becoming into something else and grief by its nature is heavy and the earth is heavy and so there's this wonderful entry of earthness into us that I think is related to grief. I think there's a relationship between grief and earthliness that is important to transformation and becoming whole, as we talked about, is becoming our earthliness and integrating the transcendent in an organized fashion into a structure of earthliness. And so we literally become heavier by the end of the process. We're heavier, but not in a grief way by the end of transformation, but in a way that we've embodied more ourselves as earth. And um, and that is a heavier substance. And that's our birthright. You know, as humans, that is what it is to become human. You know, on some level, the ancient ones know that, you know, really... Possibly we don't really become human until we transform the first time, then we become human. So that's one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. One thing that I really loved that you talked about near the end was you equated wholeness with presence. And that really rang very true for me as a new way of talking about or grasping that experience of presence and connecting it with that sense of wholeness or the concept of wholeness. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am so happy you said that because the process is about becoming yourself. And when you are integrating, you're integrating yourself. And once you integrate yourself, you are yourself holy. And when you are yourself, you embody yourself for the first time, there is a witness present. The witness, the full witness, the body witness, the heart witness, the mind witness, the spirit witness, the wholeness is then here on earth to bear witness to the present moment. And when you are yourself as a wholeness, you can then really be present. And 
in a way that is not possible if you're not whole yet. You haven't come into yourself into wholeness. You know, you're using your mind to be present or you're using your body to be present, using your heart to be present as aspects of self that can be present in moments. But when you have yourself as wholeness, that allows for a way of being in this world, which is presence. And from reading this book and from also feeling into my own direct experience in my life as well, and you also talk very specifically about this, that the experience and the journey of experiencing grief through this process is like a powerful and trusted guide through this. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about how, um, I'm trying to remember how you said it, something to the effect that it's healthy to follow and to go deeply into our grief, which then made me wonder if it's possible to overdo that or to get lost in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both for sure. I'll tell a little brief story. I have had a teacher, Native American teacher, Marilyn Youngbird. She's Arikara Haddad Samandan, and she's in her 80s now. So she lived through the time in our country when Native American people were children, were taken away from their families and taken to boarding houses and made to wear other clothes and learn other things and sit in rows and all these things and that their religion was illegal, etc. And she talked so beautifully and eloquently about that time of her life in front of a group of people. And later when we were chatting, I just was so deeply sad for all that has happened on the soil of this country. And I asked her, how did you do it? How did you make it through that? And she was very clear. She looked me right in the eyes and said, I know who I am. And when she said that 20 years ago, I didn't know what she was talking about. And now I understand. And I've had the fortune of sharing Sweat Lodge ceremony with her for many years. And in that ceremony, you go into a small space and there's hot lava stones and water poured on them and the door is shut and and it's very hot and you sweat a lot and you pray a lot. And what has always been fascinating to me over the years was every time I went to the ceremony, we sat in the circle inside of there and each person would take time to pray in the darkness and in the heat and in the sweating. Almost inevitably, everyone would cry, (laughs) you know. They would cry their prayers, and they would cry and cry about their life and what hurt them and what's troubling them and what pained them and and their prayer that that there would be relief and healing and grace to alleviate this pain and suffering. And every single time it was like this, you know, just hours of people crying. And I just thought, dear God, you know, there's so much grief. Just give people space and they're just crying, you know, for all that is in them. And I just think, oh my gosh, the grief that is being carried around and the grief, I think, is something that we're just maybe beginning to understand its significance and its importance. And what would it be like to be in a prevailing culture where grieving was something that you do together and that you do regularly and ceremonially? And of course, there are cultures like that, but 
I think that is a learning curve for the prevailing culture in the West, this knowing and learning a skill set of being with grief and allowing it to inform you and carry you. In the research, we called it follow the yellow brick grief. Because as long as we could follow the grief, if we had grief emerge and then we could be with it, then we knew we were on the right path. Like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, you know, <laughs> as long as we follow the grief, we're going to find our way to the to Oz, you know, which was, of course, in the movie Home, but knowing it for the first time. So, you know, that movie is so archetypal, showing that journey of transformation, of coming back home and knowing it for the first time and follow the yellow brick grief. So let's talk about the ways that we can get lost in the process or or what can arise that gets in the way of naturally moving through this cycle of transformation to wholeness and the ways that we can actually get in the way of the process. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is an important future work, I feel like, is discerning the difference between dismemberment and depression and also being able to not get lost in the dismemberment. But I think that if you go into the process with some degree of health, while dismemberment is awful, it will release after a few years. I think that the propensity to get lost in grief is if it was already happening. So if there's a getting lost in grief into depressive sort of episodes that are, you know, getting more towards where you need professional help, that is likely that you won't go into a real dismemberment because your self-structure is not ready yet. It's not strong enough yet or assembled enough and organized enough to become disassembled, you know. And so if there is, you know, a getting lost in the grief and the pain and suffering, thank goodness we have all these different resources of different types of therapy and healing and friends and family, hopefully to be able to help us through to grieve and release and repair the wounds to the degree that we can build a structure of ourselves and can become firm. And that might mean then that you're going on these sort of hero journeys and you'll come down into part of the lower part of figure eight into disorientation and then the self will become increasingly organized, hopefully, and structure emerging, going through various different hero journeys and coming down into disorienting and then popping back up again to an upper cycle. And going through that, hopefully receiving help, because I just think we need help. And I think most of us need help. I need help, you know, from a knowing other who can hold space with love and wisdom and and help us to mend the wounds of the past. And in that process and getting to know the self and loving the self and that process, those activities allow the self to become organized and have structure. And as soon as we have enough semblance of that structure, then we can go into dismemberment which then dissolves it and then allows for this whole other thing to emerge. But it's like we have to get to that baseline, you know, and getting to baseline for many, it requires help. And that's just really difficult because the ego is, of course, at that point less mature and doesn't want help. 
and doesn't want to believe it needs help and and all these things. And so it's difficult because you need help, but the immature ego doesn't want it. And, you know, hopefully by grace, some experience happens that causes help to be received by you. And then we're really able to move into a place where there is less suffering because after dismemberment is a lifetime of less suffering. After your first dismemberment is a lifetime of less suffering than you ever had before. And that's, you know, yay, that's what we want. (laughs) Right, right. But it can be so terrifying because dismemberment is so painful. And one of the ways that most people experience dismemberment is through the ending of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And while I was reading this book, I went through a lot of grieving. I spent a lot of time while reading this going inside and just feeling, just feeling, feeling whatever was arising. And I just felt totally drawn in and I allowed myself that. And I reflected on an experience I had. It was about 25 years ago. And I was, you know, trying to evaluate, figure out what phases I was going through. And I was going through a very difficult time in a relationship and had numerous dismemberment experiences. And finally, there was one that catalyzed the whole thing for me where I just knew we were through. And I remember coming home from this very violent encounter where where I was almost killed and and I just cried for about 2 or 3 hours intensively and then I was done I was completely done and I still don't quite know what phases though I was thinking of as dismemberment and then birth but I don't really know uh-huh Yeah, hearing you tell that beautiful story, the ending there, just from the little you said, it makes me say that you moved into surrender, and so you're in dismemberment, and that violent episode, the traumatic event, there's something about that, and then the catharsis that happened afterwards it appears to me to be a surrender when you surrendered and went into surrender and healing. So mm-hmm. the surrender and healing phase begins with this sort of very pointed experience of surrender, but not in the way that we typically hear about it. And it seems as though there's something about that that caused you to let go of something. And the violence of that experience on some sort of subtle level was the violence of that pattern leaving your body. That violence allowed you to purge a pattern that was absolutely no longer needed. And that was like the exclamation point of your dismemberment, and you did it. You lived through it. You got it out of you. And then there's the grief. My guest is Susie Ross. She's the author of this book we're talking about, The Map to Wholeness, Your Guide Through the 13 Phases of Transformation, Real-Life Stories of Crisis, Change, and Reinvention. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College, Community Radio. 
in my view, you were grieving holding that, having that pattern <laughs> and not having it anymore. Mm-hmm. And the overwhelming experience of relief. And, and then you were in the healing, you know, once you surrender, then the rest of the phase is all about healing. And healing not in the traditional sense, like different serendipitous experiences happen that are particularly soothing and sweet and loving and and that sweetness and loving and softness and nurturing that happens during that phase in these moments that are not planned by you. And these are simple moments of healing that, you know, it could be a just a kind new colleague that you work with. It could be a person who moves in next door who's just a super fantastic person. And you're like, oh, what a breath of fresh air after having a horrible neighbor for 20 years, you know, and mm-hmm. how healing that is, you know. And so it's like these sort of things that don't necessarily scream out, this is healing, you know, but it is mm-hmm. at essence healing. Yes. Shortly after that, one of my roommates had also just gone through a very painful dismemberment and we were talking about how we were done. We had no interest in getting involved with anybody again. And we ended up getting together after about a month of talking about all this together and, and sharing and going through this healing process. Yeah, that's the perfect example. Like during that healing phase, it's so amazing how natural what we were talking about earlier, how nature is unfolding and it's so wonderful like here you were and as you moved into surrender and then healing then of course you're attracting to you the healing needs and here's this person in your life who became such a wonderful healing for you in so many ways and of course it was happening right then right on cue (laughs) relationships are the you know means through which so much of this happens, where life happens through our relatedness. That doesn't happen to everybody, like a lover or a partner, but that was perfect for you, of course. Yeah, that's, that's the tricky thing about this whole thing, is, is, is learning to trust the process. And once you've gone through it, you have an understanding, or you have a, a visceral sense of the way it works. But yeah. until you've gone through that first dismemberment experience, trust is probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's why it's so helpful to have other people. I've observed so far anyway that really you need for sure one person, you know, going through that one person who gets you to a certain degree, who believes in you and cares about you and accepts you, you know, for your mess. Mm -hmm. And if you have one person, you know, you don't need to have a crowd. It's one person, and you can make it. And that one person is a very important touchstone when you're in the confusion and all that messiness. They keep you steady, you know, and thank God for that one person. And that doesn't mean that we need someone like that forever. Right. We mainly need it during the most difficult part of the journey. And isn't dismemberment, isn't that phase part of the initiation process? You mean from a sort of traditional initiation, rite of passage type of thing? Yes. 
Um, well, I think for the most part, the upper journey is exemplified in many indigenous cultures that I've studied and rites of passage literature for the men is exemplified in the anthropology literature and the hero's journey of the going out and the finding and the seeking of the vision, etc., and the completing of becoming a man or the changing of status. But the woman's rites of passage, for the most part, is different than that. You know, for many women's rites of passage, it's going into a cave, it's going into a hut, it's going into an enclosure, into darkness, into solitude, and sitting, stillness, and being with. And so, you know, those are exemplifying the masculine and feminine, the masculine being the movement that's visible and it's conquering to some degree and it's seeking its action as its basis. And for the feminine initiation is about the opposite, it's stillness and beingness and presence and darkness and non-movement. And so you have these diametric opposites as far as the ancient ways to transform, because that's what rite of passage has been across time, is the old way of knowing people, humans must transform. We are of the earth. We are of the universe. The universe has at its base constant transformation. And so, therefore, as elders, we need to facilitate the transformation to facilitate our transformation. And so, you know, the rites of passage serve that function. They are a function of transforming. But doing that tended to be different for men and women for many cultures. But what blew me away about when I saw the, the data and I saw the figure eight for the first time when we were doing the analysis, and I just thought, because I knew the literature, my co-researchers did not, and I just saw that and I was like, oh, my God. Of course, of course, the journeys link together that now, now in this time, is this image coming to us through the symbol that the era is over of having two processes, one for you and one for me, that the coming of time of our inner union of the masculine and feminine, of human beings, you know, being male and female, being that which is both, and, of course, that now emerges this eight that has as its upper the one journey and the lower as the other journey and that they are one. And that in that coming together and experiencing of that full eight, that fullness, creates an initiation into wholeness that is a masculine journey and a feminine journey brought together, you know. And that, of course, makes so much sense. So male initiation and female initiation may start from different places, but eventually they each have to make the full journey, integrate yeah. the full journey. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And some of the myths and, of course, some rites of passage include both, you know, the upper and the lower journey, but it just has never been named, made visible and obvious and clear, I think, until this research and this book. And I could be wrong because, of course, I can't know all the literature in the world or all the cultures and all this stuff. But based on what I have studied thus far over the last, whatever, long time, then that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. This is 
information that we have not yet had. And perhaps somebody will take this work of yours and take it even further. Of course, absolutely. That's kind of, I think, how it goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about going up and the outer journey, and we've talked about going down and the inner journey. How do we complete the journey? How, how do we get to that place of wholeness? That, that was the part that eluded me in, in terms of recognizing that phase in my own life. I mean, I recognize the, the abundance and creativity part, but power to a much, much lesser degree. And I have an inner sense of wholeness, but I don't see how I ever got there. I don't see it in the way you described it. So I, I don't really feel confident, you know, of understanding that. Mm-hmm. And maybe you should start with abundance and creativity. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Looking at the sequence here in the book, the experience that I spoke of where we acknowledged ended with surrender and healing, which would take me to the point of birth. And after birth comes abundance and creativity and then power and then finally integration. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier about how this is subtle. And I think that as you get to know the characteristics and properties of each phase, you know, then then there's the knowing that you can recognize it more in hindsight at the very least and sometimes when you're in the midst of it. And the stories in the book, you know, Kenny's story I'm thinking of right now, Kenny wanted to be a guru. He had this awakening experience in prison and this lady, Gangaji, who's, you know, known by many as as a person who has achieved some sort of awakened state or enlightenment, and he's meditating next to her, and she's a guru to people, and he's like, I want to be that, you know, and I've had this awakening experience, I want to be that, but his integration was nothing flashy, you know, (laughs) there's nothing flashy about it at all. His abundance, his power, and his integration were so beautifully ordinary. And I just love hearing and analyzing his life because, you know, he had this like wowza experience and pretty dramatic life. And on the other side was this ordinariness. And I just think that's so beautiful because maybe that's it, you know, for so many of us. What if integration looks really ordinary, you know, I'm so excited for people to read this book and for them to talk about it, you know, talk about their lives in in relationship to this phenomena of transformation so that we can hear more stories and how the many, many ways in which transformation can look yet have this commonality of this pattern that is archetypal Yet your own unique experience of that phase, you know, and so, you know, when you're saying that those phases for you were not so recognizable and didn't stand out, you know, of course, what I want to do is spend another hour offline with you and talk about, you know, that time of your life, you know, because it it did take me, you know, years to, to interview, to make this book, to get to that level of detail, because it's, it's 
you know, I'd have to ask them tons and tons of questions, you know, because it wasn't evident to them, you know, what was happening. And so I had just tons of questions for me to be able to then see what was happening, to see the transformation that is invisible and for it to become visible. But, you know, I can talk with someone for 15 minutes and kind of discern where they are in the process. But to really go to that level, like what I outlined in the book, you know, that was extraordinary detail, right? Intimate detail. Because I wanted to give texture to the phases, the subtleties, because it's so subtle. And you took us through the journeys of two completely different people going through completely different kinds of transformative experience and integration. Mm-hmm. And yep. in many ways, they were kind of two almost opposite extremes. Yeah. I would have loved to have had a middle-of-the-road kind of thing. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. And that will come next is more stories so that we get more diversity in the experiences of transformation so that more people find themselves in the stories, you know. So there'll be a sequel Um, to this? Yes, I am really excited and hopeful to be able to write a second book this year. I I love the book. Um, I love the journey that I got to take inside while reading it, even though it was very unsettling and very disorienting at times and full of grief. But as you spoke of earlier, the connection between grief and the earth, that there's great richness and fertility in that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and integration is absolutely so beautiful. I mean, if there's a lived experience that I would say is the most beautiful for me is integration. You know, in the end, I've divulged my, you know, literal mountaintop experience and the sublimeness of dismemberment. But integration is so beautiful. It is an experience when your body as a receptacle, as a container, and your heart and your body and your mind and your spirit experience the state of heaven on earth, where heaven and earth are balanced and in you in an organized way that is homeostasis, where the inner and the outer are no longer in conflict or different. And that is a really important part of integration because there's a seamless flow and isness that is shared between the inner and the outer self. That freedom of the self not in conflict between the outer life and the inner life, that is such a wonderful state to be in. And I think when people seek transformative experiences, I believe that's what they're really seeking is integration. And when you can experience it once, and you don't even have to experience it consciously, your body is experiencing it. Your body knows, and your spirit knows, and your heart does, and then your mind comes later. (laughs) You know, consciousness comes later. But that feeling, that experience, your body experiencing that state of integration, you know, it's not enlightenment. It's 
place where your being is structured and ordered and where the polarities are integrated into order and into who you are as an organized whole. And that is so nice. And it can be totally ordinary. No magical, mystical experience required of it. It is. But there's a peacefulness that is inherent to integration. And, you know, it's not that everything is absolutely perfect. It's just that there is a way that you are experiencing that is this peace. It doesn't last forever, but it does last for a little bit of time, more than a day, more than a week, more than a month. And that's pretty wonderful. And we can bring that with us as we move through some of the phases. Like, we will continue to have and to go through all those other phases, including dismemberment and disorientation. But we can bring a sense of inner peace with it so that after the initial shock, we can kind of remember that, oh, yeah, I've been here before. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Yes, you have all that that you gained. You don't lose it. And that goes forward with you as you into your next transformation. And it sure does a lot for spiritual materialism. And you, once you go through dismemberment, especially when you go through it with your eyes open, there is no longer a desire to seek the peak that is done. So when there is enough people, when there are enough people who go through dismemberment with their eyes open, spiritual materialism is going to be a thing of the past, you know, and, and we'll be on to a different problem as a collective or as a larger group. You know, we won't be seeking the peak anymore because it's, you know, the sobering aspects of, of transformation. And then there's a beauty that life takes when you live transformation with your eyes open. You have more awareness of it because then there's just beauty in it because it's life moving and universe becoming As us, you know, there's different kind of ways you could say it, but I guess I'll just say it makes life this sort of sublime beauty. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. So how can people find out more about your work? Right now I have the website net, and in there you can take a quiz called the Transformation Quiz, and it's around 35 questions and you click your answer, the best works for you. And it does take some reflection to take the quiz. might want to have someone who knows you well go through it with you so they can kind of help respond to the questions or not. And then the end of the quiz, hopefully, if it does a good job, then it tells you what phase of transformation you are likely to be in. And then you can look at the page that's dedicated to that phase And I have a poem there, and I have some narrative there describing the phase, and then there's a video so that there's different ways to get to know that phase and feel it out for yourself. Is this where I am? Because once you know more where you are, you can make sense of the past and anticipate the future. And that usually helps the mind calm down about things in general. And then if you want to have a free consultation, I have free consultation, I think it's 10 minutes, and office hours type of thing that I'm going to open up where people can sign up for a 10-minute slot and get you know write information ahead of time that I would read so I get to know your context. 
so that then we can make best use of that small period of time. And then if you wanted more, then I have available, you know, paid time slots where I can work with you and help you in any way that I can get to know or help you discern where you're at or to make sense of where you're at or make sense of the past or anticipate how close you are to the next phase or just answer questions like what you're talking about with grief or whatever. Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so grateful. Thank you for having me. Susie Ross is the author of this book we've been talking about, The Map to Wholeness, Your Guide Through the 13 Phases of Transformation, Real-Life Stories of Crisis, Change, and Reinvention. Again, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. pushing in, open to the possibilities within, pushing out. See the love shine in through my cracks. See the light shine out through me. I am broken. I am open. I am broken open. See the love light shining through me, shining through my cracks, through the gaps. My spirit takes journey. My spirit takes flight could not have risen otherwise, and I am not running. I am choosing. Running is not a choice from the breaking. Breaking is freeing. Broken is freedom. I am not broken. I am free.
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week.